Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello and welcome to Partly Political Broadcast, episode 40. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and I am a professional health tourist. Uh, by that, I mean I was once given a tour around a gym. I bought a LucasAid at the gift shop and no, no one seemed happy about me taking photos at all. It's been yet another week of standard 2016 politics as written by Joseph Heller, with many Eurosceptics describing Chancellor Philip Hammond's autumn statement as gloomy, even though gloomy is pretty much autumn's key character trait. Of course, critics actually thought it was gloomy not just because Hammond constantly looks like he's not seen any sunshine since 1984, but due to the economic forecasts that Brexit will cost the UK about £60 billion in lost growth. Apparently, this is all nonsense, according to one nameless hard Brexiteer minister, because forecasts said that there'd also be a recession once we exited Europe, and as they said, that hasn't happened. So yeah, it's unlikely that anything else awful will. The big problem, of course, with that statement is that we haven't actually left the EU yet, so unless that minister has been reading tea leaves to predict the future, it's entirely wrong. Of course, if they were reading tea leaves, they'd know that the cost of buying tea leaves had gone up, and they'd have to try really hard not to already realise things were already shit. Meanwhile, Theresa May stated in an interview with The Sun that her faith in God will guide her to the right path for Brexit. Which seems pretty fitting, as there's no proof that either God or any Brexit plans actually exist. The big news this past week was that Cuban politician and revolutionary Fidel Castro died on Saturday at the age of 90, proving, amongst other things, that cigars and rum really can't be that bad for you. Castro was a controversial figure in global history as he was seen as being an anti-imperialist hero who secured Cuba's independence from America and sporter of hipster beards long before it was cool, but also as a dictator who oppressed the Cuban people and was cause of a number of human rights abuses and he had a terrible taste in tracksuits. I went to Cuba a few years back and I left completely confused by the situation uh, about as much as I had been before I visited. Uh, the people there had brilliant healthcare, amazing education uh, and I really remember... Uh, just people playing music in the streets and kids playing in the streets looking really happy and healthy. But they were also in extreme poverty and the buildings were collapsing and tourists had a completely different currency to locals, which I think is always a really, really bad sign. 
Also, as a side note, uh, as a vegetarian, I was baffled by how Cubans didn't seem to think that ham was meat. So the menu would have a salad uh, and then a ham salad and the salad would come with ham, but just less ham than the ham salad. Completely fucking crazy. Anyway, what, what I meant to say was that as per absolutely everything like this, uh, no one in politics is allowed to have a nuanced view about someone like Fidel Castro, you know, where they just say, well, he was great for Cuban independence and everything he did for South Africa, but the fact that he had people arrested in the 60s for being homosexual was horrific, and I did like his beard, but those tracksuits were ick. So instead, Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, who has a habit of making statements about controversial figures uh, like this, he said that Castro was a champion of social justice, because I guess being beaten up by police for speaking out against your leader isn't that bad when you've got sweet free national healthcare system to patch you up afterwards, right? Do you remember Jeremy Corbyn did that about Enver Hoxha as well, the dictator that killed millions of people? You sort of wonder if at some point he'd have said, well, actually, it turned out that despite sort of terrible breathing difficulties and all his daytime jobs, Darth Vader turned out to be quite a loving, caring father. Ridiculous. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Theresa May didn't actually make a statement at all about Fidel Castro's death uh, because he was an oppressive leader who believed in free healthcare and wouldn't buy weapons off the Conservatives, so why bother to pretend to like him like they do other dictators who are actually useful to him? Theresa May won't be attending Fidel Castro's funeral, though it is possible that a deputy foreign office minister for the Americas might attend, because it's worth remembering that when there's a, a divisive revolutionary leader who fights against capitalism and imperialism, but also has some really, really dodgy oppressive policies and implements torture, but is in a second world country, no one from the first world needs to pretend to like them. Whereas when one who's exactly like that, but without any of the good bits, becomes president-elect of the US, well, we all just have to be civil and give them a chance. Now that there is the sort of rum-do... Castro wasn't a fan of. Thank you, Podbeast, for listening in once again, uh, and, and thanks to everyone who sent in very nice comments about the interview on last week's show with James Patrick, uh, who uh, was the former Met policeman and whistleblower. Uh, he's a very interesting man indeed, and do make sure that you grab his book, which I just started reading, and it's brilliant. Um, as always, if you enjoyed last week's show, or at the end of this week's show, think, oh, I love that, but in this era of almost entire communication blackout, how could I possibly convey my thoughts and feelings of enjoyment of this show to everyone else? Well, look, fear not. Uh, I mean, because you could, you could, get this, you could just review this show on iTunes. Uh, and in fact, if two more of you review the show on iTunes, it'll hit the big 50 reviews, which will give us nine more reviews than Michael Gove's Celsius 77 on Amazon, which includes someone saying, at least him writing this kept him away from our children, uh, which is brilliant. Uh, I do believe that review was written during Michael Gove's stint as education minister, uh, because since then, I mean, he just seems to leave children unattended at hotels. Well, his own, anyway. So, yes, uh, please give this show a review on iTunes, and you can also sponsor me to do this uh, weekly rant via the Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash parpolebro. Uh, and if a few more of you join up there, I'll actually bother to start adding a couple of bonus things to it, including, uh, this is part of the plan, the extended full version of the new uh, US politics jingle from last week. Uh, there is a full three-minute version of that, which, I'll be honest, uh, really, hearing that is probably more of an incentive not to donate anything to the Patreon page ever because uh, it's pretty horrific but hey give it a go see what happens right on this week's show i am talking to tv money expert the brilliant jasmine Bertles about what the autumn statement actually means uh and that bit also sort of includes the brexit fallout for this show so that's not on this episode as such but it sort of is uh and i'm also going to be looking a little bit at the concept of health tourism in the uk but first 
The Digital Economy Bill is the government's attempt to modernise the economy, and who better to do that than a ton of out-of-date politicians in a building built in 1835? Exactly. The idea is that the Digital Economy Bill will make it a legal right for all households to have decent broadband, which sounds great if only for the idea of telling BT that they have to come round and fix it ASAP, or you'll take them to court because it's your legal right to tell them to fuck off on Twitter. However, along with this part of the bill, the government wants to implement lots of online safeguarding policies as well. These include companies having to get consent from customers before they blast you with promotional emails like they did with me all Black Friday. Yeah, nice try, but I prefer to go out to real shops for my Black Friday deals and then I get to see the violence live and use it as an appropriate test for the apocalypse. I mean, you think people fighting over TVs is bad? Yeah, wait until the end of the Trump era when they have to fight over water. Sorry, I mean companies are going to have to get consent from customers, and they're also going to need age verification for all internet porn sites, which does seem very, very sensible. Uh, except that along with all the age checks that would uh, protect children, the Culture Secretary has announced that the Digital Economy Bill would also be amended to include powers to block non-compliant websites, which means that adult sites will have to comply with censorship rules and won't be able to show non-conventional sexual activities. Now, I don't know what you get up to in your homes, but what is decided to be non-conventional is going to be determined by the BBFC, and is quite likely to include things such as female ejaculation, which is not illegal in any way, and instead by banning it just appears incredibly sexist. Other acts that may appear on the non-conventional list include urination, that sort of in a sexual way, not just having a wee, uh, that would be weird um, and uh, I mean it's weird anyway oh god this is a can of worms and that's probably banned as well uh, urination menstruation spanking whipping or caning and I find this really weird as judging by their policies sleeping with a member of the government would probably involve them punishing you and making sure that you get no benefits at all before taking the piss and then you wake up the next morning absolutely covered in cuts UKIP have selected their new leader in the shaved testicle shape of Paul Nuttall, a climate change denying, pro-NHS privatising, Islamophobic, pro-lifing, hunting fan. So yeah, a progressive step forward for the party after Nigel Farage. Nuttall's victory speech involved him pointing out that he wants UKIP to replace the Labour Party, though presumably I guess he just means in the UK and not in the Labour Party's roles as observers of the Socialist International or membership of the Party of European Socialists and Progressive Alliance, unless Paul Nuttall is going to really surprise us. Nuttall says that Labour are more interested in dinner party topics such as climate change and therefore they ignore working people, whereas, you know, former UKIP leader Nigel Farage prefers to just emit his own gases while dining at the Ritz, but obviously that's taking working people into consideration somehow. But actually, UKIP could now pose a threat to Labour, uh, with many U Labour MPs backing Remain but sitting in mostly Leave constituencies. Labour MP Dan Jarvis has commissioned research that found if just one in every 50 Labour voters votes UKIP instead, Labour could lose 14 seats. And that's prompted Dan Jarvis to suggest that Labour should stop being so pro-immigration because he clearly doesn't remember those fucking mugs back in 2015. On the other hand, with only 30,000 members and one MP who doesn't like his own party, if every newspaper and TV station stopped pretending UKIP were big sharks and instead ignored them like the lichens they are, they might wither away with possible fines for fishy misspending of EU money and without Farage's blobfish face at their helm anymore. <laughs> 
Last week, Chancellor Philip Hammond gave his first and apparently last autumn statement in the Commons. Not because he's about to be fired or die or something, or because it now seems like this bleak political winter will last forever and therefore autumn statements would be irrelevant. But actually because the autumn statement is now going to become the autumn budget and the spring budget is going to become a spring statement. And really all you need to know is that the boring way in which the government tells you things are getting worse is going to happen at exactly the same times of year anyway, just with slightly different names. The government priority for the autumn statement were jams. No, not innovative ones or ones that we wish to export, but just about managing people for whom the acronym works perfectly as the autumn statement generally suggests that they're going to continue to be in a sticky situation for some time. Most of Philip Hammond's statement was about dealing with post-Brexit forecasts, but there were also a couple of things to look out for, including his promise that there'll be no more welfare cuts during this parliament. That's presumably because there's no point continuing to cut something when it's already very dead. This week I spoke to financial expert, TV presenter and creator of MoneyMagpie.com, Jasmine Bertels, who can often be seen and heard across TV and radio explaining how money things actually work. So who better to explain the ins and outs of the autumn statement? And I'm very, very pleased that Jasmine makes it all very, very clear indeed, even if the outlook is still pretty gloomy. Here's Jasmine. So, hi Jasmine. Um... Some commentators said that it was uh, a pretty boring autumn statement due to there not being really any big surprises or unexpected announcements. Uh, Quite a lot of pro-Brexit critics have said that it was a very gloomy one because of all the post-Brexit forecasts. Um, Are either of those correct at all? Well, I I think, you know, he looks like an accountant. He sounds (laughs) like an accountant. What else do you want from uh, a chancellor? I I kind of warmed to uh, Philip Hammond as he was talking. You know, insofar as you look at him and you think, well, he he does look like the sort of person who was born to be a chancellor. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike George Osborne, who's frankly, um, you know, next to Philip Hammond, definitely colourful. Not quite Boris Johnson, but, you know, more colourful. Yeah. of somebody really quite staid and frankly grey looking after our money that's that's kind of you know what what makes you feel a bit more secure I mean secure is a funny word to use in these times but you know we need a little bit of something that's going to go now we're going to go steady as we go and that's kind of how it came across sure um but frankly um uh, he, he didn't. He didn't really have, and and doesn't have much in the way of wiggle room. You know, Frank uh, George Osborne didn't have much. You know, when he came to power, uh, as you know, the the outgoing government basically said, "Yeah, we've spent all the money," but they spent even more. You know, even more money has gone now after Brexit. Um, I think Brexiteers saying it's gloomy. Well. You know, the rest of us would say it's just realistic, actually. Um, Let's see what happens. There have been some some good figures that have come out this this year, um, you know, after Brexit, which has been quite surprising. The markets have done really well. Sterling's dropped like a stone, admittedly. Mm. Um, Last month, apparently, the tax revenues were the highest they've been for years and years and years. So, yeah, there has been some good news, but... Going forward, it really does look, I think it's it's best for us to sort of assume that it's going to be tough so then we can prepare. And if it isn't tough, well, great. But if it is, well, at least we've prepared, you know, and I think that's the way the, the Chancellor's thinking. He He's doing his best to make sure that he's, 
yeah, steering a steady course in very choppy seas. Sure. I mean, yeah, to be fair, I, I don't ever know. I, I've never known Norton Statement to be exciting, really. <laughs> I don't, it's not particularly the event of the year. Like, it's not like an, an, an Apple announcement or something, is it? Um <laughs> But but I was, uh, you were just mentioning about the the Brexit there with the the post. Uh, I was going to get into this later, but I think let's dive into this now. Um, with the there have been some good announcements since the Brexit since the referendum, but of course we haven't actually had Brexit yet. So exactly, yeah. Is that I mean I'm guessing that sort of limits what Philip Hammond can put into place anyway. Yes, absolutely, and and, and this is essentially the argument back to to Brexiteers who are going, look, what's your problem? It's all fine. Nobody's really had any problems. And look, business is doing well because because of the low sterling, low pound. Um, But the thing is, as you say, nothing solid has actually happened. We are still in Europe. We are still part of the EU. We're we're still trading with the usual trading agreements. Um, They're saying that in March we're going to pull out, but you know we we've had the possibility of, of a, a legal challenge to that to that. Also, the EU members, the other member states, are saying that if we do pull out, they're going to make it as difficult as possible. Obviously, they would. That's what everybody, well, half the, the country was saying they would do. Hmm. Um, so that might actually uh, put off the the. the the government members who are actually trying to negotiate at the moment. Who knows? This is the thing that the, the uncertainty is, is is driving us all a little bit mental, I think, because nobody really knows. Um, and, and so at the moment, we're in this kind of no man's land, but we are still working as if things that are, are normal. Um, and we'll all have to see in, in March if it happens. And if it does happen, it in what way it's going to happen, whether it's going to be hard Brexit, soft Brexit, scrambled Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> be lightly poached, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did, I did like uh, the number of people that said, well, it seems like everything's fried. I think that's how it's going to be. Um, I, I was one of those things you mentioned that the, the pound falling was something that when it was uh, and I should sort of let listeners know that if they don't know already that I have no clue about economics but when I heard that the pound was falling it sounded terrible but I've also heard a number of commentators say actually it does allow more people to buy from us it means tourism might go up and it means that I think debt that we owe other countries will have less interest on it is is that is it a good thing that the pound's fallen then well this is the thing you know it's good and it's bad it, it depends who you are and what you're doing and also how long it's low for so it, it essentially as you say um because the pound is low that against other currencies that means that um countries that have those other currencies suddenly look at our goods and services as being really rather cheap and you know what it's like i mean you remember when <laughs> you remember back when um the, the the pound was high and um, you could go to or, you know, Greece or something, and, and you get something really cheap. You have a marvelously cheap holiday because the pound's so strong and everything. Well, it's now it's the other way round, and and other people, particularly um, you know Americans and Europeans and um, various countries, are looking at Britain, going, "Ooh, that's really, you know what used to be expensive is now nice and cheap." So that is good for our business for any business that we're doing abroad and we we are trying to do more business abroad that's good as you say it's bringing tourism in because people are thinking well I'll, I'll just get to london or i'll go to edinburgh or whatever while it's cheap um but for us for you and me as consumers we in this country 
are net importers of goods, particularly some services, but goods mainly. Sure. So that means that we import more than we export. And so that's going to make things more expensive for us. And I don't know, about, don't know about you, but I've already noticed some things going up. I went into Sainsbury's uh, this evening to get some grapes, and they're £2.15 instead of £2. You know, and I thought, Brexit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and in fact, speaking of Sainsbury's, the, um, the head of Sainsbury's said today that um, he's expecting food prices to go up by 5% in the next six months. Wow. Yeah, and, and already we are seeing um, petrol prices up, and that's because oil is priced in dollars. So as the pound is low against the dollar at the moment. That means that oil is more expensive, so petrol is more expensive. It's probably going to translate into all sorts of things because so many things are transported. So, sure. you know, so many things have petrol costs. So although it's good for, for business, and that's excellent, it's not great for us as consumers. And also, after a while, if things like oil and, and, and other raw materials, if you like, get too expensive, then that'll mean that the stuff that we make and send abroad is then going to be more expensive because our raw materials are up. So it's a bit of a balancing act, really. It's it's good and it's bad. It's not the sort of thing you want for too long, but it's kind of handy at the moment. Sure, and, and I'm guessing absolutely terrible if anyone wants to go on holiday anywhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It just means, yeah, it's going to cost loads when you go abroad, which is, a, yeah, definitely not, not a nice thing to have. No, exactly. And I, I go to America quite a lot, or I try to, and I'm thinking, great, that's just brilliant, isn't it? You know, I'm not going to be able to buy so much. But my American friends coming over here are like, oh, yes, we're going to come twice a year. Not <laughs> well, to be fair, based on the recent election, they'll probably want to come here a lot more than you'll want to go there. So that's yeah. what sort of works yeah. out, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, I, just to just to go back to the the autumn statement for a minute. Um, one of the things, uh, well, that Philip Hammond said a number of things uh, that seemed quite a sort of contrast to the Osborne years. In in my understanding, uh, he said that they were no longer going to try and balance the books. This Parliament, um, that the the peak national debt's going to rise, and they're not going to make any more sort of welfare cuts. Do you think that the statement he made this time seems like a rejection of Osborne's statements and the way that Osborne did things? Well. Frankly, I think that if Osborne were still Chancellor now, he would probably be forced to say the same sort of thing. I don't think it's what Hammond really wants to do. I think basically even you know, this government, last government, is really keen to balance the books. They, they don't like having such a huge debt and huge, such a huge deficit, uh, different things, as you know. Um, they want to cut, cut, cut in, and, and increase our income um, in order to just balance the books. But because of the Brexit vote, um, because of the cost of it and, and the potential problems that are coming up, I, I think Hammond's just taken the view, and rightly so, that his number one priority is to make sure that Britain at least looks like a going concern, that we can keep having the investment that we've had for, for many years now from foreign countries, foreign companies. And so he's willing to invest more to keep things going. You know, he's he announced um, increasing broadband speeds, which is really good to, you know, to improve uh, the way we do business, particularly digitally, 
and and that um, connection between Oxford and Cambridge that's a kind of similar thing because those that Oxford Cambridge particularly and London and Oxford are our digital hubs if you like that's where all the really clever people are creating extraordinary things which we are then exporting around the world so he's investing in that and so that's the the main and I think he's right to do it that's his his main aim is to keep Britain going and okay if that means he's got to borrow more if that means he's got to try and get people working and and make them not make them too unhappy then fine we'll just have to do that and think about balancing the books in the next parliament whenever that is sure I guess there's part of the thing of if you keep people going they'll keep kind of being able to afford and buy stuff and that'll keep the economy going anyway won't it yes and, and that's you know all these different economic theories and one of one of the economic theories which is basically what what I think the Corbynites um, go for is basically if you just borrow a lot more money and plow it into the into the country particularly giving giving benefits um, putting money into infrastructure all that sort of thing you keep people working and then they spend and also you get tax money back so that that's one of the economic theories um, that was uh, that's the opposite effectively to to what Osborne was thinking and honestly I don't really think it's it's the way that this government thinks but yeah you know there's a, a strong argument for it and in a kind of in a small way you could say that is what what um, Hammond is doing at the moment or I think planning on doing Right, yeah, because that was a, a big thing they said about this statement was that, um, I really hate the acronym, but they said it was, they were aiming to help jams, which is, what is it, just about managing people, which I think is that after innovative jams and everything else they talked about, it got very confusing. But um, yeah, so so this, the, the, they were saying this whole point of this statement was to really help the people that are, that are sort of struggling at the moment. And do you think it did that? Do you think there was anything in this statement to actually, that will help people that are struggling? No. <laughs> oh dear. Right. I, really I mean, I, I liked the, uh, the the fact that he's clamping down on lettings fees. Now, about four million people in this country uh, rent, four million, and so it, it's something that's growing because, of course, it's so hard to afford a new house, etc. And you know, just at least to, to deal with the fees is a good start. That there's more that needs to be done there because there are still unaffordable rents. There's it. it there needs to be caps on rents, but hey, at least that's a start. Um, and he's raising the, the minimum wage, the living wage, from seven pounds twenty to seven pounds fifty. So that's an extra thirty p an hour. Oh, you know, over the over the week, that makes a difference. And he has said that he's not going to make welfare cuts in this parliament. Well, that's good, but he's freezing the the benefits. So that means, as far as I can see, that. As um, inflation goes up, and we are expecting inflation to go up next year. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Excuse me, we're expecting the um, inflation to increase because, as you know, as we've been saying about the price of oil, the price of imported food, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in effect, that means that... Um, not just the jams, but frankly, everybody is going to be a bit worse off because, you know, basic things like food and petrol are going to be more expensive. And we'll be back with Jasmine in a minute. But first, Chris Wormald, the most senior official at the Department of Health, told MPs last week that he was looking into hospitals checking patients' papers to see if they should have to pay for NHS treatments. I don't know if you, like me, have ever struggled to get your Tesco club card or Nectar Points card out of your wallet in time to give the supermarket cashier without holding everyone up, but I assume trying to scrabble for the two forms of ID you've been asked to bring while bleeding out in A&E is a damn sight more tricky. Slimy Wormald wants ID checks in hospitals in order to curb costs of health tourism. The idea that people travel to the UK, you know, just to revel in our wonderful waiting times and lack of beds in wards because that's oh so appealing. A national audit report from last month said that the UK government paid out £674 million to other European countries for the treatment of British people abroad, while only receiving £49 million in return for NHS treatment of EU citizens from 2014 to 2015. And at the time of recording this, the Evening Standards reported that eight major NHS trusts across the country have lost a total of £15 million to health tourism. And that sounds pretty unfair when you hear it like that, right? You know, as though maybe people are just flocking over from Spain in their thousands, walking straight past hospital receptions and taking an x-ray machine home because their family really want to know if they digest a soup as a food or a drink. But actually, things are a bit different to that. Firstly, the National Audit Report that I mentioned earlier actually states that the figures of 674 million that the UK pays to other European countries for British people's healthcare and the 49 million it claims back for European citizens' treatment here isn't really comparable. Surprise! In particular, this is mainly because far more British citizens retire abroad than vice versa, and about 80% of the UK's EEA healthcare bill relates to state pensioners and their dependents. EU law, which we're still under until we actually leave whenever that actually will ever happen ever, means that any Brits travelling in the European Economic Area and Switzerland get emergency treatment exactly the same as any other EU citizen, and a second scheme means that when British people retire on a state pension in the EEA, the UK government pay for their healthcare bills. Similarly, when Europeans retire in the UK, their government pays for their medical bills, but the fact is very few Europeans retire over here because who the fuck wants to spend their dying days in Croydon or wherever when they can stay where they are in a hot country by the beach? No one, exactly. 
Sorry oldies, but quite like the last two UK votes, stats say that once again, you've ruined it for everyone. Especially as when the UK leaves the EU, these healthcare agreements may be lost, meaning that it'll cost even more to pay for expats treatments that are living over in Europe, and it's going to be even harder to reclaim healthcare costs for Europeans over here, because we're then going to have to get it from 27 individual countries. And when our Department of Health can't even read a national audit report properly, that seems quite unlikely. The report also says that it's quite hard to accurately work out how much health tourism costs the UK each year, and that's because health tourism can be split into two categories. There's normal health tourism use, which is people who are taken ill while in the UK or have an accident, and in 2015 that was about £1.8 billion a year. But only some of that is recoverable, as much of it's in A&E, which is covered under our EU agreement, and some is for foreign residents in England who pay tax already, so charging them again would be super shitty, as they'd end up contributing more for an ingrowing hair removal, for example, than David Cameron's family ever has for anything. Around £500 million should be recoverable of normal health tourism costs, but in 2013 and 14 only £100 million was, because for some reason with all the NHS staff and cost cuts, they can't seem to employ extra people just to threaten to break people's legs if they don't pay up, which actually of course would just create even more need for hospital use for people from abroad and generally it would be far worse, so it's a, it's a terrible idea, just forget I said it. Then, of course, as well as normal use, there is deliberate use, which is people who specifically travel to the UK for health treatment because they hear just how much fun it is to be seen four hours later than your appointment time with only a coughing man and boring pamphlets for company until someone finally says your name wrong 15 times and you get seen by a doctor. There's no real way of finding out who these deliberate users are, but estimates reckon that it costs the NHS somewhere between £110 million and £280 million a year. So altogether about £500 million could be recoverable if you include deliberate and normal costs. But it will cost at least £18 million to get the resources to do that, so you can knock that off the amount that would be reclaimed. There are surcharges which apply to students and temporary migrants from outside the EEA which generate over £150 million a year. And that surcharge applied to people from New Zealand and Australia as of April this year, so they think they will be able to reclaim even more money back from that. And none of that looks at how much money the NHS actually brings in from medical tourists who are paying for specific treatments, which an independent government report says is apparently a growing market. And really, when you look at the fact that the NHS has a debt of £2.45 billion a year, but the UK spend a lower percentage of our GDP on health than France, Germany, Sweden or Greece, really, you wonder if the priority should be demanding that a tourist get out his passport because they had a car accident thinking our national speed limit sign just meant wear a seatbelt. Or, you know, maybe the priority should just be not dismantling the NHS in the first place. You can view the full National Audit Report on recovering costs of NHS treatment for overseas patients at nao.org.uk and please feel free to let MPs and journalists know. Right, now back to Jasmine. Because those things that you were mentioning as well, like the minimum wage, there's a lot of arguments to say that it's not really a living wage uh, and is still under what people are, you know, or, or what uh, Living Wage Foundation and others are saying, actually, it's still not enough to survive. Um, and, and also, as you say, with the, the housing thing uh that i mean i'm i'm a renter i'm very pleased that he's done that but uh is that it's not really going to make any difference to the the housing bubble is it or the housing crisis no he's he said he's going to put a few billion into um increasing the the housing stock but all chancellors say that you know for the last i don't know 10 15 years we've heard chancellors saying and we're going to help with housing and building houses 
and then practically nothing is done. He said that there's going to be 40,000 affordable houses being built. Well, that's not, you know, that's a drop in the ocean, frankly, um, next to what's needed. And I don't think that on its own will have very much effect on, on house prices. What might have more of an effect, and I think we're seeing it already, is uh, um, various things. Well, but, um, Osborne brought in some extra taxes and extra problems, if you like, for uh, buy-to-letters, which is making um, investing in property and, and you know buying-to-let less attractive. Um, and I think it will become even le- even even more uh, unattractive next year for uh, for buy-to-letters, um, particularly um, <laughs> including what's going to happen, I think, from lettings agents who are have been stopped now from overcharging renters like you. So it's likely that they will put more charges on the actual landlords themselves. Sure. So if we do see that, it, it, I, I think it's, it is possible that next year it, it, quite a few people who've invested in property will try to offload it. So that, you know, if enough people do offload it, then that should increase the amount of, of property on the market. So it should bring the prices down. But, you know, this is, this is all coulds and shoulds. I don't know. <laughs> Sure, yeah, and of course, and then it all depends on what sort of Brexit we have. So, yeah, <laughs> completely uncertain everywhere. Um, w- was there anything else in, in the autumn statement that people should either be very pleased or very concerned about? I know there was a, uh, they've upped the tax threshold again, haven't they, at the lowest point, and, which is nice in some ways, but I also always think, well, that's not helping get any money in, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yes, I, I do think, I, I'm um, very much uh, pro-raising the uh, threshold for income tax because, I, I do feel that, and, and I think this this is something that not just our government but other Western governments are are doing and have been doing over the last two or three years. What, what they what they realise is that um, for the last decade or so, big business has been factoring in government support for people on low incomes. So they've been. Giving, paying people very, very low wages at, at the bottom um, of the you know, bottom rungs, thinking to themselves, oh, we can do that because our government pays in-work benefits. You know, here you sort of tax credits, that sort of thing, or universal credit as it's turning out. And the governments, not just, as I say, here and elsewhere in America, Germany, France, you've, you've, I've heard about it. They've cottoned on to this, and I thought, hold on a minute, absolutely. Why should we be doing that? So that's why quite a few, not you know, and this is bigger in America even. Quite a few governments have increased the um, minimum wage, the living wage, um, and are, and also increased the thresholds that you can have your keep your money without having to pay tax on it. Um, and I think what they're going to do gradually is they will gradually up that and phase out uh, all these in-work benefits. Right. They will essentially move the burden from government, taxpayer, over to business. And, and I think we could see that the minimum wage will go up a bit further. I don't know because it'll be, you know, the business lobbies lobbying against it. But it's quite possible that they will end up putting it up even further. Sure. So I suppose that would make sense if you're earning a bit more, but you're paying less tax and you're essentially getting those in-work benefits already. Or do you think there's still... I, I'm always just wary if there's a catch somewhere. <laughs> like, does that... There, there is a catch. Absolutely. The, the catch, I think, is that they gradually, in-work benefits or, you know, will, will be phased out because they'll say, look, 
you're, you're getting um, minimum wage, you're getting a, a nice but bigger minimum wage, you're allowed to keep more of the money that you make, so actually you now don't need these extra benefits. So that's the catch. Uh, you know, and again, you could, on the one hand, you know, that sounds really horrible, but on the other hand, the, 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 the problem with benefits quite often is that they, they cost a lot to administer. Obviously, you've got the DWP, the Department of Work and Pensions, you've got the you've got HMRC, the, the tax office, all those people. You've got lots of people there administering it, not necessarily administering it terribly well, but they, they have to be paid. You've got all those systems, all that cost. And then you've also got a lot of people who could be getting various benefits who are not because they don't know about it and all of that. So it's a it is an inefficient system. It's well meaning, and you know it was it was the Labour Party that brought in tax credits in order to encourage people who'd been unemployed for a long time and quite comfortable on their unemployment benefit actually to encourage them to go and actually do some work and say, look, it'll be we'll make it worth your while if you go and work. We'll add to it. It'll be okay. You will make more, but. It's it's cost the the country a lot. It's been tricky. It's been a bit fiddly. People haven't got the money when they should have done so. It does make more sense and and is just a bit more streamlined, really, to simply up the basic wage, up the um, tax threshold, and go right there. You go. You, you just carry on with that. Thank you. We'll we'll let go now. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. It does. That does. Um. Uh. It does sound very interesting, and I suppose it would change the fundamental way that kind of uh we work and we you know and, and people approach work as well uh if, if the whole tax payment system would change um i was going to ask is there sort of in terms of the rest of your system then was there anything that people should be particularly worried about do you think well i think that, you know the main thing to be worried about if you like is are the big figures you know it's, as he was saying um this 120 billion pound hole that we suddenly have um, at a time that we really don't need it. We really, really don't need this this huge um, cost. And and then the other one is is the Office of Budget Responsibilities forecast um, for our well, lack of growth that they're expecting next year. They 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 had assumed that we would grow by about. Uh, two and a half percent next year, but they brought that forecast down to one point four percent. Now you know this is a forecast. Nobody knows. You know they don't have crystal balls. It's just an educated guess. And Kirk, as we've seen this this year, an awful lot of educated guesses have been really wrong. Yeah, yeah. So you know you you can't. It's not fact, but it is quite worrying if these very very clever people who done all sorts of thinking and, and calculations and you know stuck their finger in the wind and come back and go it's going to be tough it's going to be really tough and it means essentially i think that wages are not going to go up but prices are so what we are we think looking at for next year is tougher times across the board but particularly as you say for the jams um uh, people who are just about managing or the nams the not about managing right. <laughs> somebody else say that today um it, it's it is go- it, it looks like it's going to be tough but you know as you say we don't even know if brexit is going to happen or if it does how it's going to so nothing is certain um it's just, it is generally a bit of a gloomy picture that has been painted um and yeah personally i'm i'm just 
getting myself geared up to um, to face it really and just face the fact that I'm going to it's, it's going to cost me more to do the sort of things that I've been doing this year and I may have to give some of them up next year right so good all good exciting news <laughs> it's, it's I, I do uh, and I mention this on pretty much every podcast I do uh, we get to the end of the interviews and it's always fascinating but uh, I always feel like the listeners must be thinking oh god it's bleak uh, so I, I just wondered if we could uh, finish on, on perhaps a sort of more positive are, are there any tips you could suggest are there any good things people should do if they're uh, maybe hoping to save money or you know is, is there any like a expert a bit of advice that you could give us that would maybe uh, make things seem a little bit more positive uh, in the lead up to Christmas and, and next year? I'll tell you, you know, something I was thinking today, and I, I remember thinking this um, back in 2008, that the, the way, we, the way we, we can survive, we can all survive and prosper, frankly, is by getting together. You know, we've, we've spent, certainly in, in the years that I've grown up, few decades that I've been growing up, it's been in, in a time of... Um, individualism selfishness you could call it um the cult of the one the 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 individual and it's meant that we've consumed it's we you know each we have our own individual this that and the other uh we keep our own selves going maybe our families as well but basically we're looking after ourselves but that doesn't work the the best way to really prosper is to share is to work together um you know even down to um talking to friends family neighbors saying uh look i've got this this extra food that i'm not going to need do you do you want this and you know i'm just going through my cupboards at the moment i don't need any of this Does anybody would anybody actually like need any of this and then you know they go them go actually i've just done the same would you like my and, and so that way, you know, that's a very, very basic way of, of showing how we share in order to survive and prosper. Um, and, and I think this is what we need to do more and more now. We we can't really survive on our own. And when it's really tough, we really can't survive on our own. Um, and I like the, the new sharing ideas of sharing cars um, I do house swapping um, I'm, I'm going to Paris in a couple of weeks time I'm swapping with a, a a couple who live in the middle of Paris they're coming to live in my flat I live in theirs I'm getting a, a holiday in Paris for practically nothing that's brilliant because, yeah yes I don't pay anything so you know this kind of thing if, if we could get more of an idea of working together sharing skills sharing time sharing goods sharing all sorts of stuff then we will all benefit. But if we try and just hug our things to ourselves and cope on our own, many of us won't. And I, I think we will all be poorer for that if, if we keep doing that. So get to know your neighbours. Uh, that's a very important message. I think that's very good. Um, and just uh, absolutely lastly, uh, other than the, the wonderful Money Magpie and your own Twitter, um, is there anything else you recommend people check out? What's uh, What are your favourite sort of sites and things to read for money matters and economy and things like that? I, I am a bit of a fan of The Economist, I have to say. <laughs> I, I signed up to them and I, I tend to look at their articles through Twitter, really, because they, they tweet their articles a lot. Um, so I do think that's good. Um, it, you know, for really uh, basic, sensible advice, obviously the Money Advice Service website is really good. Um, 
and uh, and I also like the the weekend FT. I, I actually occasionally that's pretty much the only newspaper I actually buy is the the weekend FT. The one during the week is is quite heavy going, and they've got a lot of figures. But the weekend one has some good fun stuff. So you know, if you're really genuinely interested in the economy or um, in in managing your money. Um, it's worth just having a mix of some of those sort of things. I think that's th- those are those are the ones that I have a look at anyway. <laughs> Many thanks to Jasmine for speaking with me. Uh, Jasmine is on Twitter as at Jasmine. Yeah, I know. How did she nab that name? That's incredible. Um, Jasmine's website is jasminebertles.com. Her surname is B-I-R-T-L-E-S. Uh, and Jasmine has also set up moneymagpie.com, which is a brilliant website full of information on how to save and manage money. Uh, in fact, all the things that I'm really terrible at. Uh, in fact, there's probably a page on there somewhere that just says, don't do whatever Tiernan does. And suddenly you're a millionaire. Uh, So do check out moneymagpie.com. And as always, if you have anyone that you'd like me to try and interview or a subject you'd like me to try and find someone to interview about, um, please do drop me a line at parpolbro on Twitter, parpolbro on Facebook or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. US President-elect and troll king Donald Trump tweeted last week that he thought that constantly unelected Nigel Farage would make a great UK ambassador to the US. Sure. And why not make Bez from the Happy Mondays the UK's ambassador for the organisation of the prohibition of chemical weapons? Actually, to be fair, while I joke, Bez would be pretty good at that job, as he'd probably sniff them out from miles and miles away, wouldn't he? Anyway, look, as far as I'm concerned, the only good reason for Nigel Farage becoming the UK's ambassador to the US is that it'd mean he'd have to get a lot more flights, so fingers crossed we'd get a repeat of 2010 really, really soon. Obviously, the US president doesn't actually get to pick who the UK send as ambassador over to them, and so we already have Sir Nigel Kim Darroch. But I thought it'd be pretty fun for this week's Question of the Week to ask you lot who you think the UK's ambassador to the US should be. At Brypot on Twitter says, uh, anyone, doesn't matter, I'll do it. They won't have anything to do. The US are heading for a very, very insular decade. Uh, at Life Academic says uh, Stephen Gerrard, experience of both countries and of course recovering from a disastrous slip to lead oh wait, uh, he's put in brackets that this is a kick foot sport joke you may need explaining to him and do you know what I didn't even bother looking it up, I just thought if I say it with confidence then any of you out there who understand football will get it and any of you out there who don't understand football will just go, huh, that's probably quite clever and that my friends is how you get towards a career in politics uh, at Technige says Brian Blessed. Uh, no reason. I, I think that would, he'd be brilliant, wouldn't he? Particularly for Donald Trump trying to interrupt that bellowing voice. I'm here from the UK. You wouldn't be able to. You wouldn't be able to interrupt that at all. It'd be incredible. Um, at the Ash Preston says that it should be an expert. Ha 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 ha! As if they listen to an expert. Um, at GV Power 64 says anyone who knows what they're doing. Uh, so that would exclude Farage immediately. Um, at Al underscore Vim uh, says it should be Danger Mouse because fuck it, let us just embrace the madness. Also, the bonus of Danger Mouse, he's quite small, so air travel would be really, really cheap. We could just sort of pop him in a parcel or something, couldn't we? Uh, can you send mice in parcels? Don't do that without checking. Uh, I wouldn't want this podcast to be responsible for a lot of dead mice being sent to the US. Unless you've got a really, really good reason for it. Um, at Real Neil Turner uh, says it should be Nigella Lawson because uh, she'd do a really good job of distracting people. For example, ooh, I normally go for a firm but supple Brexit. 
licks lips. I'd really like politicians to start asking for a firm but supple Brexit. I think I might be swayed by it then. Rob Skeen says it should be Basil Brush. Uh, Trump seems he might think that boom boom is an acceptable answer for every single question. Uh, Steve Pretty, who is um, a brilliant uh, trumpeter and uh, he's part of the Hackney Colliery Band. He's amazing. If you don't know Steve Pretty, do check him out. Um, he, uh, which I thought was a little rude actually, uh, stop fishing mate. We all know that you think it should be you. Uh, and he said, for the record, I think that you'd be ace, which I wouldn't be. I'd be quite terrible because I still find it hilarious whenever anyone says the word Trump, uh, because to me that is still a fart. And I know that's a very overused joke, but really, it's still very funny. Um, I did uh, I did say that to him, though, and uh, he said that he was so upset by the US election that being a trumpet player, he is now deciding to describe his instrument as a Hillaryette. Wonderful. Matt Kinson says uh, Julie Andrews should be the UK's ambassador to the US. Um, who can say no to her? It would be a British colony again in a week. Also, uh, in Sound of Music, she was very, very good at dealing with Nazis. So perfect. Uh, Lee Morgan says uh, Al Murray at this rate. Well, to be fair, as a friend of Al's, uh, you know, I think he's very he's a very good bloke for a start. Uh, he's, uh, when he's not in character, he's got some very sensible ideas. But also... Um, much like Farage, Al Murray ran in Thanet and lost, although they did get a full 318 votes. So, I mean, technically the same. Uh, Richard Barnes says a new Sasha Baron Cohen character because they'd never even notice. Uh, Philip Alexander says Sam Allardyce. So I suppose he needs a job now. Ah, that's a kicksport joke and I got it. And um, finally, my favourite, uh, at Not So Funny Sarah, who proves herself completely wrong from her Twitter name. She says, the bloke who's already doing it seems to be doing a good job. Let's just leave it as it is. Or Gary Lineker. Good work, Sarah. And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Slightly shorter episode than normal, but there'll be more waffle next week. Um, I'm still planning on restarting the Partly Big Society section, possibly in the new year now. So if you do have any local issues that you think we can all find a fun way to protest about, please do drop me a line at parpolbro on Twitter, parpolbro on Facebook, or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or if you just want to drop me a line about anything, really, uh, contact me on all those things. Um, maybe you've got some thoughts on Ed Ball's Strictly Come Dancing departure. Um, personally, I think that what's now been proven is that he was no good in a seat or on his feet and so he's probably just spend the rest of his life either lying down or suspended just slightly above the ground uh, i'm going to be back next week when it'll probably turn out that theresa may's brexit path as dictated by god only requires the uk to sort out trade tariffs for wine and those crappy bits of wafer bread this week's show is brought to you by the letters jam combined with numbers that keep their current low income state preserved while being overall fruitless hooray jam puns Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.